you're heading to children's church, that's sec- our children's church is second grade through, or four years old through second grade. So four years old through second grade. If you'll turn in your Bibles, our text this morning will be 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, and we'll probably read 15, 14, 15 as well. All right, so many of y'all know we mentioned the biblical counseling class that we'll meet tonight. We had 56 come if you met last night, last Sunday. If you want to come at 5 o'clock, we're talking about biblical counseling, which is just another word for discipleship. It's how you use the Word of God in your own life, but also to help people that are struggling. That's really what biblical counseling is. And so we're just kind of learning together how we can use the Bible to disciple one another, to love one another in the way that we've been commanded to love one another. So you'll notice there's a few deacons and deacons' wives that I've handed out rubrics to. So if you were here in the sanctuary and you're the first eight or so deacons I saw and their wives sitting together, those people are actually grading the sermon for me. So I need to achieve sufficient. Y'all see you've got like, is there excellent, good, and sufficient? Is that the way it works Uh, on your rubric? So I need to get sufficient on like nine out of ten or everybody gets to hear the sermon again next week, right? So no, so no pressure, no pressure. But I'll revise, if, if you really feel like I failed, I'll revise the manuscript and give it to you until I get 90% sufficient. And so that's part of my class project. I'm working on a doctor of education in ministry and should have that, uh, should graduate in May, which is kind of fun because Adelaide and I are both going to graduate the same month. She's going to graduate from high school, and I'm going to graduate from school forever. So that, I'm so excited about that, but we're going to get our cap and gown pictures uh, taken together. That'll be a lot of fun. I'm sure she's looking forward to that. So I was going to ask everybody to hold up their Bible, but you know, that's what the preacher down there in Houston does. (laughs) You hold up your Bible. But I want you to hold your Bible in your hand. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there's one in the pew in front of you, and if And if you don't have a Bible and you need one, you just feel free to take that one, and you can take that one home and read it. But what what are we holding in our hand when we hold the Bible? What is this? I think in most houses we can find one. Maybe it sits on a coffee table and never gets opened. Some houses, we're very Bible-rich in some houses. We've got a whole shelf full of Bibles. But what, what is the Bible? Well, people have made comments about what the Bible is and described the Bible. Several presidents of the United States have weighed in on it. Abraham Lincoln said, I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given man. All the good from the Savior of the world is communicated to us through this book. Theodore Roosevelt said, A thorough knowledge of the Bible is worth more than a college education. Ronald Reagan said, within the covers of the Bible are the answers for all the problems men face. Others have made uh, observations. Famous missionary Elizabeth Elliot said, the Word of God I think of as a straight edge which shows up our own crookedness. We can't really tell how crooked our thinking is until we line it up with the straight edge 
of Scripture. I think that's very intuitive or very insightful. Tell them I'm busy. I'm preaching. Uh, Augustine said, "The holy." I love this quote. He said, "The holy Scriptures are our letters from home." Isn't that great? And then, of course, it's always good to find a Mark Twain quote. Mark Twain said, Most people are bothered by those passages of Scripture they do not understand. He said, But the passages that bother me are those that I do understand. (laughs) What is the Bible? What do I hold in my hand when I hold a Bible? I think this is one of the most important questions anyone can ask, especially if you are seeking to know God. In our text this morning, I've given you what people have said about the Bible, but what does God say about the Bible? What does God say that His Word is? God's Word gives us the clearest answer to this question. I want to, in this sermon, say eight things about the Bible. Eight things that we can derive from our text that should affect the way you think about Scripture every single day of your life and how you use Scripture in your life. So while application is going to be most of this sermon, we need to take a very close look at what the text says. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And I think it's interesting when God gives us 316 verses. Uh, There's quite a few. If you'll just look up the third chapter and the 16th verse of a lot of the the books, it's easy for us to remember. So when you're confused and you're not sure what you should think about Scripture, you remember 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped, for every good work. Some background to these verses. These verses were written by the Apostle Paul. He wrote these words to Timothy. That's where we get the name of the book. He wrote these words to Timothy. He considered Timothy to be his son in the faith. So he was writing these to his protege, Timothy, while he was imprisoned in a very dark place, the prison there in Rome called the Mamertine Prison. And this was Paul's last letter. These are his final words that we have preserved before he was taken out of that dungeon prison. You can look it up and see pictures of it online. It's still there. You can visit this place, and you would go down a stairway to get to the dungeon where we think Paul and and Peter was also kept there before he was martyred. But then it would just be a matter of time after Paul wrote these words that he would ascend those steps with the Roman guard, and they would go take his head off under a persecution, uh, under Nero. He's warning Timothy in this letter, beware. Beware of false teachers. And then he reminds them, they won't get far, but you need to be on your guard against false teachers. And then he encourages Timothy to be ready for persecution by evil people, even as he was facing persecution. And so he says to Timothy in verse 14, As for you, Timothy, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. 
another reference to Scripture there, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So we see that the Scripture by the Apostle is defined as something that Timothy has learned. It's something Timothy has believed. He uses the term sacred writings and the term Scripture. By using these two terms, we understand he's speaking very broadly to all of what we would consider the Old Testament. Not just one book or the law or the, or the Psalms, but he's talking about the whole of the Old Testament. Jesus also made a very broad statement when he was talking to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, verse 39. He said, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. What was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying all of the Old Testament points to me. All of the Old Testament is about me. And Paul told Timothy, those Old Testament writings, or what we would call the Old Testament, are able to make you wise unto salvation in Jesus Christ. Scholars understand this to be a reference in John 5.39 and in 2 Timothy to the whole Old Testament. But what about the New Testament? Well, there's a theologian named William Hendrickson, and he argues that all Scripture in this verse should include everything which, through the testimony of the Holy Spirit in the church, is recognized by the church as canonical and authoritative. Now, the way we understand that is that Jesus commissioned his apostles, didn't he? He called them, he commissioned them, and they, the apostles, were the ones who spoke on behalf of God. Thankfully, in his providence, God had these words preserved for us so we can read the apostles' authoritative teaching. And when they were writing, we understand now they were writing inspired uh, words of God. So yes, even though Paul was writing Romans, the Holy Spirit was also writing Romans. And this makes sense. Even they understood this was what was happening back then. I've got another 3.16 verse for you. If you look at 2 Peter 3.16, 15 and 16, this is what Peter said. He said to, to his listeners or his readers, count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. And here's the 16th verse. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them, in Paul's letters he's referring to, there are some things in, in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So we see there in the first century in the writings of Peter that Peter puts the writings of Paul on par with other scriptures. So we would agree with Hendrickson that this verse of all Scripture should be uh, certainly would apply to the Old Testament, but also to the New Testament. And it's interesting when you study how the New Testament came together. I don't know if you've ever studied that. I think one question when we start to say, what is this Bible? It's also a good question to say, how did it come together? How was it decided that these books would be the books? And what you learn when you study that is that the church did make a list, and they said these are the books that we believe are inspired by God. These are the scriptures in the New Testament. But they didn't just decide that. 
what they did was they recognized that there were these books that had been circulated, copied, and preserved, and held in high esteem and as authoritative by the churches since the second century. And I found that whenever I study the topic of how the Bible came together, and when I study about all the manuscripts that were preserved out there by God, it gives me great encouragement in my faith, and it is strengthened. So when we read 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17, we can understand that we are talking about the Bible. The entire collection of 66 books you're holding in your hands can be understood as the sacred writings, can be understood as Scripture. So if we were going to state the sermon in one sentence, here's what the sentence would be. The Bible is the Word of God and is sufficient to fully equip believers for salvation, for life, and for ministry. How is this so? Let's look at verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Maybe your Bible says all Scripture is God-breathed, which is a more literal translation. The word is theonostos. Okay, I'm really struggling with my words here. Theonostos, which means God-breath. So whenever you've got the Bible, you can say that it's this, God's breath. Isn't that amazing? So one thing you can say when you're holding the Bible in your hands is you can say, I'm holding something that has been breathed out by God. The very thing I hold in my hands is God's breath. It's the words that He has breathed out to us. So if the Bible is God's breath, then what can we say about it? Well, number one, we could say it's inspired. That's a simple way of saying that when we read the Bible, we understand, as I mentioned, there's there are two authors at work. There's the writer, and his personality is preserved. Uh, his, his own style of writing, it wasn't as though he went into a trance and just started writing. Somehow, in the, in the complicated and dynamic way that God works, he didn't even overpower that writer's will. But somehow, cooperating with that writer, working with that writer, the Holy Spirit made sure every single word we have are the words that God intended us to have. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's important for us to understand, that this Bible, even though the man was used, that the Bible is what we have according to the will of God, that holy men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now this sermon is different, and the rest of it will be different because as I mentioned, about 90% of it is like this. I'm just telling you how I want you to think. It's application. But don't miss where the gospel fits in here. What you hold in your hand is nothing short of God revealing himself. And the way God chose to reveal himself is in a great big story. This story covers creation. It covers the fall. It covers the redemption in Christ and it, it covers the eventual restoration of all things. Everything that was lost in the garden, the Bible tells us how we're going to get it back. It's a story that at every turn is crying out that God can be known and that God loves you. It speaks of sacrifice and propitiation. It speaks of atonement for sin by blood. There's a hymn we sing. It says, it tells me of a Savior's love who died to set me free. 
It tells me of his precious blood, which is the sinner's perfect plea. It tells me what my Father has in store for me every day. And though I tread a darksome path, yield sunshine all the way. What the Bible tells us, it tells us of one whose loving heart can feel my deepest woe, who in each sorrow bears a part that none can bear below. What the Bible tells us is that we receive things we do not deserve. But in God's great love and mercy, he offers his enemies a relationship with him that is only won by his death. Scripture speaks of a great salvation that is offered to you through faith in Christ. And then the Bible tells about this ongoing process where we become more and more like Jesus. Don't lose the gospel in a verse that tells you what the scripture is because you don't know the gospel unless you have the scripture. What the Bible is is nothing short of an invitation for eternal life that begins right now and will continue on after your death. This which you hold in your hands is an invitation to know God. It's an inspired book. There's no other book like it. It's not in a genre because it's its own genre. Unique among all books ever written, and we can trust it because it is inerrant. Now, when I, the first day I ever came here, Gerald, we were in the fellowship hall. Gerald remembers this because he asked me if I remember it from time to time. And Gerald came to me and he says, so they were going to vote on me to become the pastor here nine years ago. And Gerald walked up to me and he said, I got one thing I need to know, and that's all I need to know. And I thought, okay, what's he going to ask me here? And he said, do you believe the Bible's the inspired, inerrant word of God? And I said, absolutely. He said, thank you very much. And he walked off. <clears throat> the Bible's inerrant. Now, some people, they don't want to use that word, but I like that word. What, when we, what we mean when we say inerrant is that in the original manuscripts and the original autographs that were written down by the author, that the Bible is totally truthful in everything it addresses. That means you can trust everything the Bible says. Now, y'all know I went to a college where they didn't teach that. They actually told us the Bible wasn't inerrant. They told us it was full of errors. And what you had to do was figure out what the truth was and what the errors are. Now, I'm going to tell you that's very discouraging when you do that to an 18, 19-year-old boy. And it's discouraging if you were to say that to me now that I'm 47. Because how am I going to determine what is the truth and what is error? What, what pages do we need to rip out of the Bible? Because if there's error in there, why don't we just rip it out? Where would you begin ripping pages? But that's not the main question. It's where would you stop? But the Bible, if it's full of errors, can it really be God's breath? But if the Bible is God's breath, it is not wrong, it is not false, it does not contain errors, because God's breath could never contain an error. Because God doesn't make mistakes. And if the Word of God contains mistakes... Then the question again is how many? And who are you to determine what is true and false? We talked about in our biblical counseling class last week that we're the interesting creatures on this planet. We're the ones that require outside 
words and outside knowledge to know what we're supposed to do. Be fruitful, multiply, fill, subdue the earth. Adam and Eve needed that. You didn't have to tell a dog how to be a dog. You didn't have to tell deer how to be a deer. They know. But we need the words. We need the words of God. And we need to be able to trust them. And we should remember what Jesus said about the Bible. Jesus quoted the Bible. Jesus pointed people to the Bible. He talked about its history. He talked about Adam and Eve. He talked about Sodom and Gomorrah. He spoke of many individuals in the Old Testament. And he even said, that book is about me. The Bible is God-breathed. It's inerrant. It's inspired. It's also authoritative. Now, this one is easy. Jesus is Lord. Those of us that have come to Christ, we know Jesus is Lord. And his lordship operates through the word of God. As Kevin DeYoung says, to reject the word is to reject him. He goes to talk about how the word makes claims. Kevin DeYoung says the word gives commands. And the word, thankfully for us, makes many, many uh, precious promises. And all of these commands and all of these claims and all of these promises, we have to preach them with authority. And how could I stand up here and preach with authority if I didn't think that the Bible was God's inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word? You certainly wouldn't come here every, I mean, I'm surprised you come here every week to hear me talk, but certainly you wouldn't come here every week if you just thought I was giving you my opinions, would you? But what we understand is when we teach and we preach the word, when we teach our children what the Bible says, that we're teaching them something that's the very words of God. And that gives us confidence because we're relying on its inspiration, its inerrancy, and its authority. But wait, there's more. Paul says in verse 16 that the word of God, God-breathed word, is profitable. We saw in verse 15 it said, uh, when, when Paul said to Timothy that the scriptures are able to make us wise into salvation. I can't think of anything more profitable than God's word being able to tell us the gospel and how we could be saved. But once we are Christians, once we are saved, Paul mentions and he gives categories here. There are ways that we use scripture for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, it's interesting whenever we do counsel people, we sit down with a couple, sit down with someone that's struggling, and what they want to hear is some magic piece of advice. They want to hear a story. They want to hear something that you can tell them that they can hang on to that will change their life. And I, I, don't, know, I don't know if I have any uh, techniques or methods and so I get a Bible out because that's the best thing I could think I could give someone is the truth of God's word because he created them. He knows their heart. He knows what they need better than I do. And I'm trusting that his word can speak into their life and into their heart and cause lasting change. But when I pull that Bible, I think, oh, no. Are you just going to give me a Bible, Bible verse? See, sometimes we can have a very low opinion of God's word, can't we? But if I'm thinking of it as God's very breath to me, then how could I just say, oh, just a Bible verse? I would understand that Bible verse to be God's very word. Consider what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter four. The word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, 
joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. When you're sitting in my office, I could maybe shine a flashlight on your head and try to see what's going on inside of there, but I wouldn't be able to see. I wouldn't be able to look deep into your heart, would I? But when we use God's words, what does it say? It's like a scalpel. How deep does it cut? It can discern the very thoughts and the very intentions of the heart. That's why we, when, we, when we help people, we need to help them with the Bible open. I don't have any books or tools or advice that can do that. So we use the Bible. These four categories, teaching. Now, teaching is positive. Teaching is how we form doctrine. Teaching is how the Holy Spirit forms us uh, through God's word. When we teach the Bible, we've got a certain body of knowledge. It's all the stuff we learn in Sunday school and all the stuff we hear as we come and preach, the things they write commentaries about. We teach the Bible as a body of knowledge, knowing the Holy Spirit is going to use that. But then if you look at the second use, he says rebuking and correcting both of those carry somewhat negative connotations. Now, Paul likely has false teachers in mind. Timothy, we need to use that word of God to rebuke those false teachers. But we could also understand that that would be applied to our lives. That reproof could be personal. That reproof could be doctrinal. Uh, Scripture, what it does is it shows sinners like us our failures. Our failure of acting, maybe our failure in thinking. It, 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 It dissects and clarifies the very point of the mistake, and it leads us to new peace and new wholeness. Correcting is also carries a negative connotation. Along with rebuking, if you add these together, what does it say? We're going to discipline you. We're going to correct you. We're going to rebuke you. We're going to adjust you. You ever had your mom come up to you? Do you remember those days? And she would say, when you were a child, she'd say, I think what you need is an attitude adjustment. And I was often in need of an attitude adjustment. Well, the the word works in that way. How many times have we gone to God's word and it tells us, Chad, here's where you need an adjustment. Here's where you're not loving. Here's where you're not caring. Here's where you're thinking of yourself instead of others. Here's where the highest goal in your life is not to glorify God and enjoy him, but you're trying to find purpose and satisfaction in other things. And the scripture gently rebukes us, and then it corrects us. And what a wonderful way for God to work by giving us his word, speaking to our hearts that we might change. And then the final use of scripture Paul lists in verse 316, he says, train us in righteousness. That's a positive thing like teaching. What happens when we're trained in righteousness? I think what happens is we develop an observable Christian life. Your righteousness doesn't make you a Christian. But when you're a Christian and you're growing, you're going to have an observable Christian life where you're going to be doing the right things because you love God and because you want to do those right things. Scripture and the Holy, the Holy Spirit uses it to make you holy, to train you to be holy. So taken as a whole, verse 16 shows us how Scripture works to give us knowledge, to give us direction, to lead us to salvation, and to take us towards deeper maturity in Christ. The apostle says, here's how you use the Word of God. Here's how you use it in a profitable way to reprove and correct and train and transform and change. And based on that, we can say a few more things. We can say the Bible is necessary. If you want to know who Jesus is and what he has done, 
you need scripture. If you want to know God's will for your life, read your Bible. If you want to hear God speak, open your Bible. It is also clear. Now, the fancy uh, theological word, I hope I can say it because I've been struggling with my words, but the fancy theological word for clarity of the Bible is called perpiscuity. That means you can understand it when you read it. Now, there's illustra- the, the big illustration that we use on this point to say that the Bible is clear is that whenever Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and they're asking him questions, what's the question he asks back to them? Have you not read? And what is Jesus saying when he says, have you not read the Bible? He's saying, if you would just read God's word, you would understand. You would know. He says it in Matthew chapter 12, Matthew 19, Matthew 22, Mark 12, Mark 12, uh, Luke 6. Are are passages where Jesus just straight up asks people and tells them, uh, you don't understand this because you've not read your Bible. The Bible is clear. Uh, Our Sunday school class, oh, I have to mention this, our Sunday school class meets right next to the preschool class, and the preschool class came today, and they brought me a, they have a bag here, it says Brother Chad on it, and they brought me a little card they made that said, thank you for all you do. And they all signed it. And then they brought me a Coke Zero and Reese's. So they're my new favorites. But that class meets over there right next to our class every single week. What are they doing in there? They're taking preschoolers and they're able to teach them the truth of the Bible. That's because you can understand the Bible. We can teach it to very small children. We're commanded to do that in Deuteronomy chapter 6. When we're with our children, we're to be talking about the Bible and what it says all the time. Why? Because the Bible is relevant. It is necessary. It is clear. It is relevant to your life because the Bible is about all of life. If you're living something right now, the Bible speaks to it. It is inspired, it is inerrant, it is authoritative, it is profitable, it is necessary, it is clear, it is relevant. And what does it produce? Look at verse 17. It produces a Christian that is complete and equipped. Verse 17 says that the man of God or the person of God, we don't want to leave the women out here, we can all, if we will read the scripture, be complete and equipped For every good work. The scripture is able to lead you to Christ. The Holy Spirit will use it when it's preached to lead you to Jesus. And then it's able to lead you to fulfill God's word and his work for you. Have you thought about what God intends you to be? What is God's intention for you? It's, it's interesting when you, when you counsel, sometimes you'll say, uh, if you're counseling a married couple and you say, what's, what's the purpose of your marriage? And they, they just look at you, what? What's the purpose of my marriage? I've never thought about my marriage having a purpose. It's even more disturbing when you sit down with an individual and say, why are you here on this planet? What's the purpose? And they have no idea. They have no idea. If all Scripture is God-breathed and it's profitable, it's aiming towards a purpose. 
And that purpose is that I might be complete in Christ. My life is to be complete in Christ. And then God has a purpose. He's got good works he's prepared in advance for me to do. And the Bible equips me to do those good works. So I'm complete on the inside and I'm equipped on the outside to do all that God has called me to do. When I think about becoming who God intends me to be, when I think about my purpose, I can hold the Bible and I can know that in its pages, I have all I need. Because Scripture produces a Christian that is complete and equipped and lacking nothing. Peter said, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. How do I gain knowledge of him who has called me? I open up my Bible, and there it is. By which he is granted in those words to us, Peter says, his precious and very great promises. If I want to know what God's precious and very great promises are, I have to open up my Bible because I'm holding those in my hand when I hold my Bible. So that through those promises and through that knowledge of him, I may become, Peter says, a partaker of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. Think about that. Based upon the way the Holy Spirit uses his word, when I think of those promises, when I gain that knowledge, when I trust in what God has done, it leads me into a life of sanctification where I'm reading my Bible and I'm praying and I'm loving and my heart is growing and my heart is changing to, to, away from selfishness and towards the love of God. And in that way, Peter says, we participate in the divine nature. How can I participate in the divine nature? Because I am in Christ Jesus. I was crucified with him. I was buried with him. And just as he's raised to new life, I have new life as well. That's a promise for you. We could sum all of these things up in an eighth term. We could say scripture is sufficient. What you hold in your hands is enough. What you hold in your hands is not lacking in any way. You don't need to take anything away from it. You don't need to add anything to it. It is sufficient. It's enough. Now, I've got this kit here I bought several months ago because I decided that I wanted to learn to work on my own guitars. I have a hobby of collecting guitars. Uh, I buy them when I don't need to. But, but one, of the, one of the things I do with guitars is I try to never spend more than about $300 on a guitar. Now, if you want to buy a really nice guitar... You can go to Guitar Center or Musician's Friend website, and you can buy guitars that cost between three and sometimes even $5,000. Sometimes uh, there are guitars out there that cost as much as cars, which is very surprising. But what I've loved, my challenge in life, has been to find a $200 guitar that sounds as good as a $5,000 guitar. And I'll tell you, this guitar I'm playing here today, it's a, I got it for $200. It's called a D'Angelico guitar, and I think it sounds as good as $5,000 guitars. It plays like butter, and you don't really even have to do much to it. But sometimes I buy a guitar, and the fret buzzes. You hold down the string, and it buzzes against the fret, and so you've got to file down your frets. And there's all, all sorts of other 
uh, little things that you could do uh, to, to maintain your guitar. So you might need to file down the fret, or they all have a rod in the neck that you can adjust one way or another to cause the neck to bow or cause it to, to go the other way. You can work on the bridge and try to raise or lower the strings. But I didn't have any tools to do that. And if you just try to go get a regular toolbox and work on your guitar, you might tear it up. So I've got this little kit here, and it's called a luthier's kit. And uh, I don't know if anybody, does anybody else in here have one? JW, you have one? You need to get one. And they've got little gauges that tell you how high your strings should be. And then it's got a very, uh, a, a file that's been specifically designed on one end. See that, Mariah? You can file the fret down with, with, with it. So if your fret's too high, it has a, a fret file. It has spacers. So you can tell how far the strings ought to be underneath the neck. See those? They kind of look like something you'd use on a spark plug or whatever. It's got little, little tools and little, little uh, drills. This is a whole thing of just tiny little drills that you would use to uh, work on the neck of your guitar. And then it's got ways to space out the, the strings. The strings would go in those notches, and you could tell what the diameter of the neck is. It has something called the fret rocker. Does anybody else have a fret rocker? I knew I was the only one that had one. But this, <laughs> use the fret rocker to tell whether your frets are too high or too low, because if you've got one that sits up a little high, it'll rock back and forth onto the other frets. It's a very, uh, it's a very interesting tool. It's, it's only used for like one thing in the whole world. And then uh, it's got this interesting thing here. I'm sure you have one of these, JW. Uh, this allows you to pull the pin out of the, uh, the, the bridge. It allows you to uh, wind your strings up so it doesn't take you forever to, to wind your strings when you're changing them. And all sorts of other little tools, little Allen wrenches and things like that that would be uh, uh, useful and rulers and here's another gauge and all sorts of things that I got in this little kit. Now, imagine... If I decide, if I had my kit here, I'm going to see if I can get it closed, or the illustration won't work. But imagine I had my little kit here, and I decided I needed to work on my guitar. I decided my guitar needs some maintenance. And let's say I brought my guitar over, and, and I wasn't sure what to do, how to fix it. Maybe I could sort of diagnose the problem. But imagine if I tried to work on my guitar that whole time, and I had the kit that had all the tools in it, but I never read it, I never used it, I never obeyed it. Can you imagine? I would have every single thing that I need in here. This, this little kit, even though it's not very big, it's sufficient to take care of, I would say, every, uh, you know, minor maintenance issue. I mean, if, you have, if your guitar is broken, obviously you're going to need some glue and stuff like that. But, you know, for just the things that you need to fix and maintain a guitar, everything you need is in this kit. Because I didn't just buy the eight-piece kit. I bought like the 52-piece kit. I said, I'm going to buy a kit that is going to account for every contingency. It's going to be sufficient for all my guitar needs. Well, you've got a book. What you're holding in your hand is everything. It says that it is everything you need to be complete. It says it is everything you need to be equipped for the work that God has prepared for you to do. But what good does a Bible do if you don't open it? What good does a Bible do if you don't use it? What good does a Bible do if you will not obey its teachings? But you have one. And I even invited everyone in this auditorium to take one and hold it in their hand today. And so what am I saying to you? I'm saying there's no excuse. 
There's no excuse for not living a godly life. You can open up its pages, and it's an invitation to come to God in repentance and faith. And in those pages, believers have everything that is necessary to live a life that is complete and equipped for good works. Puritan John Owen said this about the Bible. Scripture is sufficient unto the end for which it is designed. That is, it is sufficient to generate, to cherish, to increase, and to preserve your faith and love and reverence with holy obedience in all of them. The scripture, he says, teach, it, 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 it is what is used by the Holy Spirit to generate us, to make us born again. It causes us to love the word of God, to increase in our faith, to persevere in our faith. It creates in us a love, a holy love, a reverence for God, and obedience in such a way as will assuredly bring believers unto the end of all supernatural revelation in the enjoyment of God. It's all we need to live for God and to enjoy him. What you hold in your hand is the very breath of God. But the question is, what will you do with what you're holding? Will you believe? Will you accept the invitation to come to Christ? Will you offer your life in obedience as a living sacrifice? Will you love God? Will you love others? And will you allow the Holy Spirit to use that word to grow you and mature you in Christ? Will you cherish the words of God above the words of men? Will you trust what it proclaims and promises to you? Will you allow it to correct you and instruct you? Will you help others learn how to obey it? And will you use it to minister to people who are lost and who are hurting, who need to know their purpose, who need to understand their marriage, who need to understand how are we going to raise these children? If you will do those things, what you hold in your hand is the written word of God, and it, it will prove truly to be, next to Jesus, the greatest treasure ever given to you, the living word of God.